Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 251, Lost on the Freedom Trail, the National Park Service and Urban Renewal in Postwar Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. In just a few moments, I'm going to be joined by Seth Brueggemann, author of the recent book Lost on the Freedom Trail. In it, he traces the development of the Freedom Trail and our Boston National Historic Park, examining the inevitable tension between driving tourism revenue to Boston and doing good history. He delves into the politics surrounding our local historic sites during the trauma of urban renewal in Boston and during the violence of the busing era that followed. He also explains how the Freedom Trail and related sites have been used to defend dominant ideas about whiteness at several different points in Boston's contested history. But before we talk about the creation of the Freedom Trail in Boston National Historic Park, I just want to pause and say thank you to everyone who supports Hub History on Patreon. Thanks to your support, this interview should be the last remote interview I carry out without video. As I'm sure you can tell, almost all of our interviews on the show are recorded remotely. I've only done two or three using Zoom because I don't love their audio quality. In the past, I've been using another tool that gives me good audio quality but doesn't allow video. But there are a lot of times when the conversation gets awkward without nonverbal cues. For a long time, I've wanted to move the show over to a different recording service, one that allows video to facilitate the conversation while still recording high-quality multi-track audio. And thanks to you, I was just able to sign us up for this service, even though it costs a bit more each month than the old one. So to all our sponsors who made this transition possible, thank you. If you're not yet supporting the show and you'd like to start, just go to patreon.com hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. And thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. I also want to make a couple of announcements before we get started. First, my hours at work are changing this summer. I'm not quite sure yet how that'll impact my prep time for the show, but if you notice disruptions to the release schedule, or if you see more reruns than usual, it's probably due to my dreaded day job. With that out of the way, I also just want to announce that we are now a multiple award-winning podcast. If you listened to the last episode, you heard me brag a bit on the 2020 Preservation Achievement Award that Hub History got. And since recording that, I learned that Hub History has received a Massachusetts History Alliance Star Award for Innovation and Communications in Public History. How cool's that? I'm joined now by Seth Brueggemann. Seth is an associate professor of history at Temple University, where he studies the role of memory in public life, especially how Americans have used objects, whether it's in museums, monuments, historic sites, or beyond, to exert control over how we understand the past. Lost on the Freedom Trail is his fourth book. Seth Brueggemann, welcome to the show. Thank you. I have to say to start out, I really appreciated that you started out the book with a passage from a Spencer novel by Robert (laughs) B. Parker, God Save the Child. Right. I'm a transplant to the Boston area. Mm -hmm. Uh, I came here for school originally. And one of the big reasons I chose moving to Boston over some of the other options was I love the Spencer novel. So Mm -hmm. are are you also a fan? Well, you know, I wasn't before I wrote this book. And then I was working on the project and a, a friend mentioned, you should read the, the Spencer novels. And <laughs> and I read that one and I, I saw that quote. And I think it may be the first line in a chapter in, in the novel. And 
<laughs> I, I read the line and I thought, wow, you know, he just summarized my entire story in one sentence. So I, I, had, to, I had to use it. If memory serves, it's sort of a gritty description of coming up to the Tobin Bridge with triple-deckers and projects of Charlestown on one side and the, the sparkling Navy Yard on the other. Is that about right? Yeah. W- would you like me to read it? Oh, sure. So this is uh, from Robert B. Parker's God Save the Child, which was published in 1974. And this is, uh, as you noted, Jake, uh, the voice of Spencer, who is the, the haggard detective who uh, <laughs> is at the core of these novels. I drove north out of Boston over the Mystic River Bridge uh, with the top down on my car. On the right was Old Ironsides at Birth in the Navy Yard, and to the left of the bridge, the Bunker Hill Monument. Between them stretch three-decker tenements alternating with modular urban renewal units. One of the real triumphs of prefab design is to create a sense of nostalgia for slums. <laughs> I love it. Parker's writing is wonderful and it's evocative and it's it's simple, but it's also rich. But you know that line caught for me both the feeling of driving through that space today in some ways, um, mm-hmm. but also it captured the sense of change, right? The process of an urban place changing um, and connected it to uh, memory, which are uh, things I'm interested in. So it seemed perfect. Now, before we get too far into this, I guess I should say that the book is Lost on the Freedom Trail, and it's a history of both the Freedom Trail, as the the title indicates, but also of Boston National Historical Park. And it's funny because one of the the taglines that I I use for the show is that this is the show that goes far beyond the Freedom Trail, but – this time we're going to stay on and near the freedom trail. <laughs> I think it's I think it's very unlikely that somebody who's been listening to 250 odd episodes of this this podcast doesn't know what the freedom trail is. But just in case we have somebody from Minnesota who's never been here, can you just give a, a brief description of what the freedom trail is and what it's for? The freedom trail is literally a trail. It is a walking path rendered on the streets of Boston, sometimes with paint, uh, a red line drawn on the sidewalk, sometimes engraved or inlaid with uh, metal medallions and other markers. But essentially, it's a walking tour of some of the city's most iconic historic sites. And those historic sites specifically are those that narrate the saga of the American Revolution. So the trail has been there since the late 50s. But it has changed a little bit over time. Uh, it's gone through a couple of permutations, but it remains probably one of the nation's most popular, if not the most popular, uh, heritage walking trails. So it's it's interesting you mentioned that the Freedom Trail is devoted to this, the sites that evoke memory of the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. And a good section of your book is dedicated to sort of how Boston came to focus on that period in our historical memory. We had almost as long a history prior to the revolution as we've had <laughs> since in a lot of ways. Um, yep. you know, the, a lot of other history happened in Boston. So how did Boston pivot away from the Puritan period or 19th century history or our colonial wars against France, mm-hmm. whatever the other periods may be, and, and focus just on the revolution? This is a great question, and it's one that a number of historians have wrangled with, probably Al Young most famously. You know, I, I try to synthesize some of their work and then also share some insights, but uh, to kind of capture the, the, the general um, thread of that story, you know, the revolution, like 
any kind of big, confusing, amorphous event uh, gets politicized right after <laughs> the revolution. It really sort of before it's even over, folks are narrating it and, and kind of claiming its meaning for the nation and for the city. And, and so the, the kind of the enormity of the possibility of rebranding one's claim to the, the, the American revolution um, for political purposes going forward in some ways eclipses all other histories, right? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, to give an example of this, uh, as Al Young writes about, uh, by the 1820s, for instance, you know, the Whig Party is kind of uh, trying to claim um, memories or claim the last remaining veterans of the war as these sort of symbols of uh, entrepreneurial manhood in the young republic, <laughs> um, you know, who show you that really the kind of political system you need is one that encourages uh, native born white men uh, to have the kinds of tools they need to succeed and the rest of the nation will succeed. And, and so this immediately throws this memory into the, 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 broader cauldron of uh, the slave issue in the United States. And uh, I was going to say a generation or two later, the Republicans are also trying to claim ownership of that memory for their own political purposes, that's right? That's right, right. And Longfellow's poem, uh, you know, as as many of us know, um, you know, is, is an argument about um, – um, resisting slavery. So both, both sides of, of the, the political equation get into the business of harnessing revolutionary memory for their political ends. And, and in that sense, because revolutionary memory is such a powerful tool and because it serves power and it ends up serving whiteness in very particular ways, I think what you see happen is that, um, uh, because that memory is so lucrative, it ends up eclipsing other ways of remembering in Boston. Well, you, you mentioned the the Longfellow poems, the Paul Revere's Ride, which uh, many of us had to memorize in school and, and definitely still plays a, a big role in historical memory, especially at the Paul Revere House in Old North. But it looms very large in your book. It, it seems to be a reference point over and over for how Boston sees itself, even in the 20th century that we're seeing ourselves through sort of a Longfellow lens. Right. Yeah. And I mean, there's a reason for that. You know, one of my primary concerns in this book, uh, you know, really all the, the work I do is to make very clear that we choose how we want to remember, right? And and the histories that are passed to us or those that we learn in places like Boston are the results of choices made about how to remember. And so in order to understand why we know what we do about the past, we have to interrogate those choices, which means figuring out who made those choices for us and what their purposes were and, and what the sources are. And, you know, the fact that Longfellow's poem becomes in some way a scaffolding on which to hang the story of Boston National Historical Park. Um, you know, in some ways, the, the park carries the action of Longfellow's poem. Um, it, it makes us have to contend with the fact that the history we confront in, in the park and along the Freedom Trail is in many ways an echo of a poem, right? Not written for the sake of doing history, but rather um, for a noble cause to, to take a stance against um, slavery. But nonetheless, uh, it's a piece of fiction, 
with a, a specific intent. And so, one of the you know the concerns I have in the the, the book is to ask, you know, so what happens when we organize a public historical experience such as a national park or the Freedom Trail around a a, a popular poem, rather than say doing history. <laughs> um, and, and that's, you know, and there's, there, there's more to it than that too. I mean, the, the centering of Paul Revere, the persistent and dogged centering of Paul Revere and the story of um, the Freedom Trail is not accidental. You know, I make the argument that um, after World War II, when the Freedom Trail uh, really uh, is born and matures, um, and gets tied into processes of urban renewal, that Paul Revere is a very handy symbol of that white male entrepreneurial accomplishment that we talked about a little bit earlier, and that becomes an organizing principle around which um, planners are, are building cities after the war. How did we get to that point? So there was this a huge upsurge in memory and commemoration around the centennial in uh, 1876. And then another big upsurge sort of in the interwar years or after World War One. So what, what happened to get us from sort of Longfellow's poem in the 1860s and the centennial in the 1870s mm-hmm. through, I guess, probably the 1930s were the first glimmering of planning that eventually becomes the park and the Freedom Trail and some of the other things. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the centennial because the 1876 centennial, among other things, really popularizes the so-called colonial revival, which most people probably think of as kind of a you know, sort of movement of home decoration and, and, and furniture uh, and, and so forth and so on. But the popularization of colonial stuff, whether it be those home decorations or or historic images, or dress, or open-air museums, such as Colonial Williamsburg and, and others. The popularization of colonial stuff after the centennial celebration shows just how profitable history can be. Right? That's, it's a marketing project that makes a lot of money for a lot of people. And those folks are making money in part off the fact that many, many Americans are concerned about the way the nation is changing, uh, especially after Reconstruction, and specifically white people who are very nervous about um, the movement of uh, free people north. They're nervous about uh, immigration. Uh, they're nervous about um, sort of um, the weakening of their economic position. And so the colonial revival in many ways makes money off the fear of white folks that um, their patrimony is eroding. And so we have then by the 1930s in place this notion that you can make money off the past. We have this move to center whiteness. Then we get the Great Depression, <laughs> right, which introduces a couple more interesting innovations. One of them is a radically broadened National Park Service, whose mission it is uh, during the New Deal years to sort of build American nationalism and give Americans something to be excited about and to buoy their spirits. Previously, the National Park Service had been protecting wide open spaces out west, mostly Yosemite, Yellowstone, Glacier. Right. And now they're being charged with 
moving into eastern cities and and taking over historic sites that are more urban in, in nature, right? That's absolutely right. And you know, it's not that the Park Service had always, you know, prior to the 1930s been strictly wilderness sites. I mean, there's always a little bit of history mixed in, but it really is with the 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 new deal that we see a push as you say eastward uh and a push toward history. Uh, and a push into cities. Um, and 1935 is a, is a flashpoint for that. It's a National Historic Sites Act, where we see the agency getting a mandate to actually go out and find historic places that they can save from destruction, preserve, and interpret. And that becomes a part of uh, a very important part of the nation's heritage infrastructure going forward, on top of which those uh, previous forces, profit, uh, fear of difference in immigration, so forth and so on, get hung on. Yeah, I've been to a lot of those urban park sites in Philly and San Francisco and just all over. And so I definitely appreciate the shift in focus, uh, along with, of course, their wilderness protection is also great. The reason you're seeing that impact so clearly in Philadelphia and San Francisco Boston will be an example. St. Louis would be a good example of this too, is that the Park Service, as I'm arguing in the book, is following the path created by urban redevelopment uh, in the United States, which is maturing as early as the 1930s, right? And when I say urban redevelopment, what I'm saying is, uh, what I'm referring to is the focused uh, intentional reorganization of cities uh, to root out perceived economic failure and to build uh, new futures for those places. Um, and the Park Service is very interested in that in that initiative. I was interested to read that because I, I really associate urban renewal with the 50s and especially the 60s here in Boston. Um, but to read that it, that was a process that was really kicking off by the 1930s was interesting. I think that that sense of you know urban renewal happening after the war is pretty common, but mm-hmm. uh, in this story, you, you dig into the the, the Boston um, uh, National Historic Park Genesis story, and, and what you find out is that the people involved in it. And so I'm thinking of a guy named Edwin Small, for instance, uh, who's a National Park Service historian. He's hired on in the 1930s under the WPA, fresh out of school, you know, young young guy doing history. He pretty quickly um, in his career by 1936 uh, or seven um, becomes superintendent of Salem National Historic Site. And Salem is undergoing a, a pretty remarkable and intensive phase of urban redevelopment uh, by 1936 or 37. And so Small, who's a Park Service person, sees this and he becomes convinced that, uh, say, demolishing old homes and replacing them with parking lots <laughs> uh, so as to showcase um, prettier old homes <laughs> or nicer <laughs> old homes or, more specifically, old homes that have belonged to, to prominent people. Um, he sees that as a, a good idea. Like, this is – he's inspired by that. And it's not an accident that Small will become a, a lead player in what happens in Boston later on. So speaking of Small and his central role, there's a, a pivotal moment in the book, or it's, it's set up as a pivotal moment in 1938, a, a fateful meeting 
between Edwin Small and John McCormick. Will you also introduce John McCormick and then sort of tell us about the the roles that those two guys would play in reinventing Boston? John McCormick is a representative, uh, U.S. representative from South Boston. And uh, by 1938, he becomes very interested uh, in making it so that the Dorchester Heights Monument in South Boston is made into a, a national monument, um, a national historic site, in fact. Uh, he wants some kind of national recognition for Dorchester Heights. And your listeners probably know what Dorchester Heights Monument is, but just real quick, um, there, this is a, a, there's a monument built at Dorchester Heights. The monument was built in the 1890s to celebrate the evacuation of the British um, during, the, um, during the revolution, um, an early victory for, for the colonials. And it had become a kind of epicenter for uh, the citizens of South Boston and the site of patriotic memory and, and so forth. And people uh, get a little confused that, that Dorchester Heights is in South Boston. but <laughs> While Dorchester was still an independent town, it ceded some land to Boston, South Boston. So Dorchester Heights is in South Boston, confusingly. <laughs> so, so thank you for the clarification. That, it's, that's really useful. Um, but McCormick wants to make the monument a, a national monument. And he gets that urge in 1938, um, probably buoyed on by the same forces we've been talking about, right? Um, uh, the Colonial Revival and New National Park Service, so forth and so on. Well, you mentioned in the book that you, you said that you found nothing in his papers to indicate that he had a special interest in, in historic preservation. So it must have been a different impetus behind his, his drive to create this park, right? To nationalize Dorchester Heights. I'll share with you what I think it was. Uh, I, I mean, his papers are thin, but you know, the, the papers of all Boston politicians end up being pretty thin. <laughs> and you know, I've, I've talked with many archivists who've um, explained that those records get cleaned quite well before they ever arrive. So, right, right. So that makes it, sense. Yeah, it requires a good bit of, of footwork to put together the motivations. So what is he interested in? McCormick, um, as some others have said, was um, feeling a little politically vulnerable, uh, in part because he was representing an Irish-American district, and um, he was a little nervous about his Irish-American credibility. It turns out his dad was Canadian. <laughs> a secret Canadian. A secret Canadian. And, and he didn't want anybody to know this. So, so there, there's some sense that he might have wanted to do something very powerful uh, for the residents of his district to kind of shore up his <laughs> Irishness. Um, <laughs> that's going on. Um, there is nervousness in South Boston um, about uh, shifting demographics in, in that part of the city. And there's um, there are efforts to gerrymander districts to keep black voters out who um, are newly arriving um First from uh, overseas and then later from uh, from the south. So the black population of the the district is making white people nervous. And um, I have a sense that McCormick is speaking to those interests. <laughs> McCormick has a brother named Nako McCormick, who's like a <laughs> Irish American kind of thug, um, who who's very much involved in in the community, and it was the marshal of the St. Patrick's Day parade for for many years. Um, so he was tied into that community, and it turns out that 1938 is the year that the Commonwealth uh, voted to mingle 
uh, the celebration of Evacuation Day with St. Patrick's Day uh, on the same day, on March 17th. So it's a year wherein Irish-American nationalism is in some ways being challenged, in other ways uh, it's being asserted. And my sense is McCormick is jumping into this. And what his concern is, uh, is not to celebrate history so much, but rather um, more firmly establish that kind of uh, uh, awareness of Irish-American nationalism. So that's what I see happening here. And it, you know, if you buy my argument, then it means the spark that is igniting the process that creates a national park is that not necessarily an interest in celebrating Paul Revere. So that's a very different Genesis story. He's a little bit early to the party, it seems like. He's very interested in the, the late 30s and, and 40s in some sort of federal protection for Dorchester Heights, but that, that comes much later. Getting back to Edwin Small, so McCormick takes the proposal to Small and the, and the Park Service, and they are absolutely not interested. <laughs> and, and, and it's really fun to see the response. Um, I mean, Small is quite blunt about it. He's like, Dorchester Heights just isn't that important or interesting from a historical I, I thought that was hilarious because <laughs> – for me, you know, you think of, you know, it's it's what broke the siege. It's why we're not British. It won, it won the revolution, bringing the Canada to Dorchester Heights. So yeah. to have it rejected as, eh, it's not that relevant to the story seemed really funny to me. Well, it's fun, you know, because this is a great example of how, getting back to your earlier question, why is it we come to value some histories over others? Mm -hmm. It can be shocking to look back and see how people have variously valued histories that we consider important now. So... The fact that there's some debate about Dorchester Heights in 1938 is deeply interesting. And it, it actually sets a stage for this story of similar um, failures to make the case for the necessity of a national park. And the idea, you know, it takes a very long time for anybody to successfully argue that Boston needs a national park. <laughs> Before anybody is able to successfully make that argument is end up with tourism boosters. People are trying to cash in on sort of post-war wealth and mobility with some other way to attract tourists to downtown Boston. And that's where we get the Freedom Trail. So talk a little bit about the genesis of the Freedom Trail itself. As the the steps to creating a national park um, are, are somewhat lengthy and failed <laughs> in many ways, the steps toward making a Freedom Trail are really rapid and successful the core part of the story in the beginnings of the Freedom Trail have to do with a guy named Bill Schofield, uh, who's a local newspaper man. And Schofield gets this notion after World War II and by 1951, certainly, that what the city needs is some kind of tool for tourists who want to experience Boston's historic sites, but don't want to be inconvenienced by the seedier aspects of uh, downtown Boston. And, and so this is a period when uh, the city is changing quickly. Uh, West End um, is in the process of being demolished. The old Scully Square uh, neighborhood is just about to get cleared out. And Schofield is... <laughs> He's responding to white middle-class tourists who don't want to see homelessness mm -hmm. or they're nervous about seeing people who don't look like them 
he says something to the effect that you know we don't want people coming to our city, setting out to see Paul Revere's house, and ending out at another North End salami counter, <laughs> right? Which, in I I think, in a very real way, is the equivalent of saying we want we want tourists to bring their money, but we don't want them to have to bump into working class Italians. Yeah, it's, it's funny how how late mainstream American culture embraced Italian Americans <laughs> in general and Italian American food in, in particular, because it's such a mainstay today, but you can read old accounts of walking to the, through the North End and smelling the stench of cooking garlic and th- you know, all the things we smell now walking through the North End and go, oh, I got to go to the lunch there. That sounds great. <laughs> and you read those older accounts of how you know disgusting that was. Often that is, you know, my sense is often that is veiled language. I don't know that people are that deeply upset by the aroma of cooking, (laughs) but I do think they're often still thinking, you know, that Italians are, you know, they're thinking about Sacco and Vanzetti. They're thinking about radicalism. And in the North End, maybe they're talking about economic difference and things that are offensive to uh, the sort of folks who really prefer the colonial revival. <laughs> uh, so that's who Schofield is writing for. And he, you know, he pitches this notion that there should be a walking tour uh, for those people. And this is also the same time that, you know, uh, downtown businesses are trying to kind of entice uh, white Americans back into the city to spend their money at shops and grocery stores and whatnot. And so that's where the Freedom Trail comes from. He proposes this trail. He calls it the Liberty Trail, and there are a few other names. Um, but it's uh, it's a proposal made in a series of newspaper articles that the mayor likes the idea, serves his agenda. You describe it in the book as a walking tour of Longfellow's historical imagination, which comes back to that theme again. But what does that mean? What sites did Schofield choose for his proposed tour? And and what does that tell us about what was happening in Boston, I guess, at the time? Yeah, well, you know, the sites are not much different than what you would see on the trail today, right? You've got, um, you know, Copps Hill Burying Ground, Old North, Paul Revere House, Faneuil Hall, uh, Old State House, so forth and so on. You don't get the Liberty Tree, <laughs> which is at that point still just on the edge of Chinatown uh, and in a place that would not, in Schofield's mind, be appropriate for these new visitors to go. Uh, so you don't get sites like that. And you certainly don't get sites that celebrate people of color in the American Revolution or women. And you know, these are very much stories about heroic men doing great things per Longfellow's portrayal, but without the anti-slavery politics <laughs> right. uh, mixed in. The Freedom Trail or the Freedom Path, I guess, in its first iteration, officially opens with Mayor Hines' support in 1951. So in that first year, if a tourist was going to come and walk the Freedom Path, what would they actually encounter? It, it was too early for the red line on the sidewalk, I think. The first two or three years, you might have experienced something a little different each year. Um there would have been like some plywood signs with maybe pictures of Paul Revere on them, maybe the word Freedom Trail printed on them. Uh, they'd be scattered around pretty insubstantial, I guess I would say. Uh, but a handful of markers, probably some print literature. In some ways, you know, the early trail begins as a... Uh, really a marketing campaign 
Sure. And that's not an accident because it sponsors ultimately the Boston Ag Club uh, and then the Chamber of Commerce are the organizations that take over uh, and manage this thing. And so, you know, you can imagine it had a fairly sophisticated marketing campaign as a result. It, you include uh, the cover of a comic book that was mm-hmm. printed in the 60s by the Chamber of Commerce to promote the Freedom Trail. And it, it's such a time capsule of attitudes at the time where dad is confidently c- declaring that good government means low taxes. And the, the teenage son at the end, having experienced the wonders of the, the Freedom Trail, says, oh, maybe one of these days I could even work in Boston, <laughs> which, you know. Not I. Maybe I'll move to Boston. I'll live in Boston. No, no, no. We're a, a white suburban family. We live in the suburbs. That's exactly, <laughs> and and that I mean, it really captures that idea, doesn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you have in that image, you know, the American nuclear family. The dad is the head of household. This idea that they live outside, but they'll come in the profit, right? To 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 build wealth there, and also, you know, we need to see this within the context of American anti-communism. Uh, which is very much alive. You know, we're in the midst of the Cold War at this point. You know, if we were to snap back over to the Park Service and and look at some of the congressional hearings over the idea of whether or not to create a park in Boston. Those hearings kick off right at the same time that the Freedom Trail officially opens. I think it's the same year, right, that McCormick introduces a study bill? Yep, that's that's absolutely right. Yeah, 51 is the year. And and yeah, and those conversations among um, you know our elected representatives about whether or not this 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 idea should be studied are run through with conversations about communism and how investing in American historic sites is a way to to resist communism. So was at the time rhetorically images such as that nuclear white family of of means you know that. Mm-hmm. Those presentations of what an ideal American family should be or is were, you know, part of the nation's foreign policy at that. You know, they're a weapon in fighting communism by by creating a model, a visual model, of the success of the American dream. <laughs> um, and and the Freedom Trail story is deeply, deeply tied into that. Once McCormick brings a bill before Congress to start studying the idea of a national park in Boston. What sites would have been purchased or taken over or partnered up with by the Park Service? It's not much different than what you would imagine today. So the, the earlier, you know, the early versions of the proposal uh, will include Bunker Hill, Old North, Old State House. I mean, some of the core sites. The difference is that the proposals then were including. Uh, not just those properties, but land condemnation proposals as well, right? So we want to create a park wherein we will build a mall around Paul Revere House. And, you know, we will do that by destroying homes and and moving people off the, the property. Um, mm-hmm. And that happens in a couple of cases. So, so when the proposals go to Congress, uh, the Park Service creates proposals that smell very much like an old generation of redevelopment that involves dipl- displacement and demolition. And Boston, by this point, or by the time the commission's actually created to study the, the creation of the park, mm-hmm. Boston's been through a very traumatic period of what we called slum clearance at the time, right. where we displaced thousands of people in the West End and the South End and different parts of Boston that had to be redeveloped, by which we mean flattened and 
started That's over. Right. <laughs> thousands of people, primarily uh, working people, uh, people of color, mm-hmm. um, thousands of people who did not ultimately get uh, put elsewhere, weren't were taken care of as it were. Large uh, percentages of folks did not get relocated. And what is so problematic about that is that when the Park Service shows its support for that model of urban redevelopment, slum clearance, as you, as you say, and as folks would say then, you know, essentially the Park Service is tacitly endorsing the removal of working people and people of color. <laughs> and that message, it's very clear that that message gets across. It's very clear later in the response of folks who live in Charlestown and in and, and the North End and the pushback uh, that the Park Service gets against the proposed legislation uh, that uh, eventually fails. So, so people know what's going on, and they don't like the idea, and and that that comes through. Yeah. So we keep we keep alluding to to a commission that's going to study the creation of a park. So that is officially the Boston National Historic Sites Commission that's authorized in 1955. Right. So who who makes up this commission that's going to be weighing uh, the historical value of sites in Boston? So the Boston National Historic Sites Commission, right. So this is the commission that's created to see whether it makes sense to create a Boston National Historical Park, and if so, how to do it. So who's in the commission? Representative Tip O'Neill is on the commission. Uh, Senator uh, Saldenstahl is on the commission. Uh, Louise Francis Crowninshield, who's a prominent uh, preservationist, uh, is on the commission, the only woman on the commission. Conrad Wirth, who's the director of the National Park Service, uh, and also somebody with very deep roots in urban renewal. And then also uh, a few minor characters that I, I, I'll leave out for now, but a fellow um, who's very important named Mark Bortman, uh, who ends up becoming the president of the commission. And Bortman is a uh, he's a Boston patriot. <laughs> he's very, he's somebody who's very invested, uh, especially in Paul Revere's story. And he's a plastics magnet. So he's a, a very wealthy uh, industrialist. And that's the kind of small group that's put together at the beginning to run the commission. Um, and you mentioned that Ed- Park historian Edwin Small started taking on a, a very central role also, even though I don't think he was a commission member, right? Um, well, no, he wasn't chosen to be in the commission. So so essentially what happens, all of these wealthy, prominent people uh, are put together in a room to figure out the problem of Boston, and they get nothing done because they just argue <laughs> with one another. Uh, Welcome and- to Boston. <laughs> That's right. So, so Bortman realizes they need somebody to, to help. Uh, he asked the, the National Park Service, um, who has a hand in all of this, and they say, hey, we've got just the, the, the person for you. How about this guy, Edwin Small? And now, you and I have already talked about Edwin Small from back in 1938, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, we're in 1955, and Edwin Small is coming back to be the person who's going to be essentially the the lead administrator for this commission. And because the commissioners are so argumentative and conflicted and can't get anything done, it creates this incredible opportunity for Edwin Small to really kind of take charge um, quietly in the background and put his imprint on the work of this commission. 
And, you know, in fact, he says so much in an interview years later, he says, you know, look, I came in, I got it together. I essentially did all the work for them. Uh, (laughs) And I believe it. I mean, it's small that ends up writing the final report. But what's amazing about this is when small comes in 55 to do this and finishes the report in 61, he's essentially bringing to that work the same vision he had. Mm-hmm. From back in 1938, right? And and so, you know, this this is how inertia gets built into historical interpretation, where we see old ideas recirculated for a very long time. And as you recall, his ideas were born of his experience of urban renewal at Salem um, and were very much rooted in the colonial revivalism uh, of the early 20th century. One thing that the commission was evaluating as they considered all the different sites that might have been included in a park was something called survival value. And you noted that they concluded that Faneuil Hall and the Bunker Hill Monument had virtually no survival value. So, so what was this that they were trying to evaluate and why did some of these iconic places in Boston not meet the test? By survival value, um, the notion is this. Or the question is this, should we keep a structure, should we preserve a historic structure if not enough of its original form remains so that it would be recognized by the people who knew it in that time, right? And so at Faneuil Hall, for instance, by 1955, Faneuil Hall looked nothing <laughs> like Faneuil Hall looked uh, during the 18th century. Right, it was entirely renovated in the 19th century. It renovated, expanded, changed. You know, the structure itself effectively wasn't the same structure, right? And so there's a question, you know, do we keep it? At Bunker Hill, you know, the issue was the, the monument, though, about the revolution – actually had nothing to do with the revolution, right? It's not like the monument was there during the war. Uh, the monument, rather, is a symbol of how we've chosen to remember the war. Right. And so the arguments over those two sites, uh, you know, boil down to that, that question. Like, does the federal government preserve sites that have, quote, no survival value, meaning that aren't in some way indexical to the moment that produced them? And the way they end up answering the question is, yes, we absolutely do, because the places are important and because (laughs) they are so much a part of our memory that how could we not and and still call ourselves people who care about revolutionary history? And, And that's a fascinating argument because it points back to that problem we talked about earlier about the persistence of myth and... You know, how does a poem become the basis for a history and so forth and so on? And and these folks are choosing to keep those icons in circulation, even though their their significance is in doubt. But um can I tell you the briefly the story about the the meat market? Um, yeah, ab- absolutely. I was about to to lead us there because it seems so funny, but also so very Boston for this <laughs> high-minded commission to get dragged into very low politics about whether Faneuil Hall should host butchers, whether butchers should have their shops in in, in Faneuil Hall. So how did we get involved in that debate? I, I mean, in some ways, it is the the essential story of the book. 
So the problem is this. Uh, by the mid-20th century, Faneuil Hall had become home to dozens of food vendors, specifically meat merchants, butchers, who were a real popular feature of, of the area and served you know, the food needs of local residents and you know, were known for giving good deals on their meat and were also kind of part of, of the local color of the community. And this bothered the commission. It especially bothered people like Mark Bortman, uh, the chair of the commission, because uh, in his opinion, the meat merchants were loud they were smelly <laughs> uh, because, you know, they threw their their scraps back in the alley. Uh, they attracted vermin. And at the end of the day, in the perspective of Mark Bortman, that meant they weren't very historical because in his mind, his colonial revival mind, history is something that is comfortable or at least soothing in how it celebrates a, a noble American past. And meat merchants didn't fill that 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 bill for for Bortman. Now, on the other hand, uh, on the other side of the commission, you have Walter Muir Whitehill, who argues that you know the meat merchants are as as historical as anything else in Faneuil Hall. It was one of our marketplaces. That's what it was constructed <laughs> it was actual, for. Right? These were actual you know, market dwellers. These were you know, real merchants. Um, who were keeping alive civic traditions and serving a civic purpose. And uh, there's some great lines from Whitehill about how, you know, the, the, the smell of raw meat is the you know, most authentic uh, historical experience you'll have in Boston. And honestly, that's probably true. <laughs> so it seems like the yardstick for somebody like Bortman and, and the folks who wanted to, to get the butchers mm -hmm. out it sounds like they were comparing the experience that they envisioned at Faneuil Hall against Colonial That's right. Williamsburg. That's exactly right. And White Hill doesn't want Colonial Williamsburg. I think I'm on team yeah, White Hill well, here. Well, you know, it's interesting. He was aware of Williamsburg, of course. He was also aware of what had happened in Philadelphia in terms of its renewal process and the creation of Independence National Historical Park there. And in Philadelphia, you know, the Park Service advising the city ended up demolishing so much historic property and ripping out of the historic core of the city, much of the, the spirit of the past, as it were, right? The sort of tangible links, how people walk there, how they talk there, uh, how they engage one another. And so he's he has all that in mind and he's trying to encourage a more vibrant uh, encounter with a past that if not perfectly authentic, at least as a legacy of a previous version of Boston. And so, so this becomes a pitch battle. I mean, Bortman, Bortman wants to make money. He wants people to come to this place and you know, spend their tourist dollars and not be offended. Whitehill's thinking more about the city itself. Uh, people live there, uh, creating a different picture of the past. And the two battle. And they take the battle to the newspapers there are, you know, there are like lampoons posted of this argument in gentlemen's clubs around town. It's just a wild thing. And it, it gives you some sense of what was at stake in the arguments over preservation in the 1950s and shows you how little of it is really about anything I think we would think is about like doing history. <laughs> you know, it's about other stuff. And it also doesn't 
involve historians per se, in so much as, you know, they are people who are doing hard research and thinking broadly about um, uh, long trends and chronologies. Um, this is really about different versions of a kind of boosterism and about, you know, bringing tourists into town. So it, it, it's, it, you'll note in the, the chapter, I go on for a very long time about it because it's interesting. It's also unfolding against changes in national uh, regulation of the, the meat market. Um, so there, there are strains of this debate about, you know, big government versus small government and who gets to make money in the U.S. and, and all those kinds of interesting issues. All of that's at play. And yeah. there's a thread that carries forward into a pretty modern debate where the city was trying to push the meat and produce vendors out of Faneuil Hall to the area that became Newmarket, which is both the site that was proposed as the, the center of our 2024 Olympic bid here in Boston and sort of the, the epicenter of our opioid crisis also so that you can see the roots of some more modern debates coming from Absolutely. the same time. And, you know, it's fascinating. You're, you're spot on with that. And- Yes, the the roots of those arguments, you know, which are really arguments about what kind of nation we want to be and how American democracy works and how American capitalism works, uh, you can get at them through that meat market debate in really fascinating ways. As that debate unfolded, the commission, I don't want to say it got sidetracked, but I'll say it got sidetracked <laughs> into about the time that the commission had sorted out a plan for what would become uh, Minuteman National Historic Park out in Lexington and Concord, they announced that Faneuil Hall and the Blackstone Block were basically the only parts of the historic core of Boston that were worth protecting. And right at the same time, the government center redevelopment project was announced, which would have threatened what they considered the only two areas worth saving. What sort of fault lines within the commission or within the city did that reveal about who was okay with demolishing areas and removing residents and, and who wasn't? Boston hires Ed Logue, right. To come be the sort of, um, you know, the new urban renewal czar. Yeah. Main city planner, I guess at that point, right. Brought in by mayor Collins, John Collins, who was elected in, 1959, I want to say. Yeah. The commission is finishing its work. And when I say the commission is finishing its work, I mean, Edwin Small is finishing the work. Just as Ed Logue is coming to Boston. And it's clear to me that Small has largely given up on the possibility of coming up with a clear and coherent plan for downtown Boston. In part because I don't think he's that interested in it, honestly. Um, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but also because I think he knows that Logue is coming and the commission's work is in some ways all for naught as a result of that, because Logue's going to bring his own plan. Small, ever since the 30s, really, really, really was interested in the battle road. <laughs> And so the whole time he's working on the problem of creating a national park in Boston, he just is dying to think about the possibility of creating a national park that's 
for the Battle Road. And and correct me if I'm wrong. He he becomes the first superintendent. Yes. At Man, so right? that that's the dramatic you know conclusion of this in some way. You know, he comes up with a kind of a rough sketch for a plan for the commission by fifty eight fifty nine, and from there on out, all he wants to do is think about the Battle Road, and he just pours himself into that. And in his notes, he says, "Look, you know." Pretty much history, you know, history is a mixed bag uh, inside, what is it, uh, Route 128, 128, right? And we're sort of losing the fight there. So let's look elsewhere. And he puts all this work into um, the Battle Road Project, which was never intended by the legislation that that um, came forward to create the, the commission. And as you, you point out, we kind of find out why later on. He's sort of building a place for himself to land, right? And he creates a park for which he becomes a superintendent, which in hindsight then makes us wonder, so what was he up to in Boston all those years? And, and what kind of work was really getting done there? And then as a, a sort of side bit to that, Small later on and years later finds himself at the, the heart of a controversy where he's he himself is buying up properties around the Air Force Base <laughs> to rent to people at inflated rates. So about around Hanscom. So we find that small, you know, though he's supposed to be the kind of responsible NPS historian, keeping everybody moving forward, he's got his own game and he's interested in profit too. And, you know, he's leveraging the situation in very particular ways. And while he's distracted in Concord, Ed Logue steps in to fill the vacuum in Boston in terms of leading, envisioning some sort of future historic That's right. Area. That's right. Logue comes in and he has an entirely different vision. And it's interesting. You know, Logue has no idea what the Park Service has done. Um, it's like a, maybe by 62 or something like that, a memo goes around saying, hey, there's this you know commission that did this report. Does anybody know about it? And you write that it was a, a distant memory so it soon just by, by 1962. Right. It, it, in terms of policy, it just vanished. And, you know, Logue is, you know, he's a hired gun. He has a job to, to you know, he's being paid more than the mayor to make the city, um, to reinvent the city. And so he has a much broader historical vision. Um and I'm not saying that this makes it necessarily a better historical vision, but you know, he's not just concerned with revolutionary memory. Um, he wants his, uh, the, um, uh, he puts together a little historical commission and he wants them to think broadly about significance. And he wants to involve more people in that story. You know, at the, the core of his historic commission is a woman, a young woman named Gladys Lyons who he tasks with doing much of this research. Um, keep in mind that uh, the Boston National Historic Sites Commission is staffed entirely by very uh, aged people um, and just you know one, one woman who doesn't really have an active role. So, so Logue is thinking more broadly about chronology, he's thinking more broadly about who gets to choose what kinds of past we remember. And he really is thinking more along the um, the lines of Walter Muir Whitehill about how to animate the spirit of the city around its past. Uh, and it's Whitehill, ultimately, that <laughs> Logue picks to head up his uh, historic commission. And on the federal level, eventually the baton gets taken up by uh, Tip O'Neill, uh, who I don't think was the speaker yet, but it would eventually be the speaker of the house. 
So what, what were his efforts to get some sort of uh, federal protection yeah, for sites so in Boston? O'Neill like, was on the commission, but he really didn't go to meetings. Um, you know, most of the, 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 the politicians didn't. But because he was on the commission, he, he ended up being responsible for trying to implement its findings um, during the 60s, uh, which included the notion that, you know, the, the government should come in and buy up some land and demolish properties and, and build a national park. And folks in Boston by the mid 1960s, uh, certainly working people, certainly people in the neighborhoods um, they were thinking about uh, would have nothing to do with that. That vision of uh, mid-century uh, redevelopment was very much out of favor. And it turns out, it looks like O'Neill probably didn't even quite know the details of the proposal uh, in terms of understanding the scale of demolition involved. And um, finally, when um, you know the push goes back to Congress, uh, those congressional hearings uh, end up taking no action because the commission's report doesn't make the case ultimately at that moment for why the federal government should step in uh, and do this work when there are so many local historical associations doing such good work in Boston already. And so the whole, the whole thing just kind of stalls out uh, in, in the, the mid-60s. It sounds like what gets the process started again, really, is sort of the one-two punch of the failure of Boston's bid to host the, uh, the Bicentennial World's Fair, on Maidland and Boston Harbor, which we have a past episode about that listeners can, yeah. can check out. It's a yeah. crazy plan, pure crazy. And the, so the one-two punch of the, the failed bicentennial bid and then the, the sort of unexpected sudden closure of the Charlestown Navy Yard. So how did that change planning and thinking about a Boston National Historical Throughout that, that failed political campaign during the 60s, um, where nobody in the Park Service is talking to Logue, <laughs> and nobody's really thinking about the reality of, of, of the urban situation in Boston, some things are changing. So the Freedom Trail is getting more popular. There have been some Park Service studies done on what it would take to build a park. So those are happening. But right, then these two you know, simultaneous failures, as I described them, that send politicians and planners and local boosters uh, back into the mindset of thinking maybe a national park might not be a bad idea. You know, because think about it, you know, what if we took this, this, these, you know, bits of these old plans we had for the National Bicentennial Celebration, and we created a, a gigantic maritime history park over at the Navy Yard. And, and what if we did this and that? We could create new jobs to offset the losses from the closure of the Navy Yard. We could generate more tax revenue potentially, uh, by, you know, Developing these old places into shops and businesses. Go back to Parker's quote at the the beginning of the the book. We could we could convert this failure into opportunity, and you know amid deindustrialization, amid the beginning of the move toward uh, a contracted federal government, as we'll experience under Reaganism, politicians love this concept. And so they go back to the National Park Service and they say, hey, look, the Freedom Trail has become so popular here. Look how popular it is now. Weren't you all interested in creating a park at some time? Why don't you pull those plans back out and we'll do it now? 
that's the mood in in the late seventies. And the Park Service, you know, several years from their serious plan making at this point, and they say, uh, we can absolutely not do this. We never conceived of a national park that would include uh, you know, Boston's core historic sites and the Navy Yard, which is across the river and huge and a facility that we can't manage. We never planned for that. Our numbers were for you know, just a small kind of you know, preservation initiative. Uh, sorry, Congress, we can't do it. Uh, so, you know, an interesting twist, the National Park Service ends up arguing against the plan that it had been pursuing for 30 years, but because it knew that it would fail. But Congress r- refused to accept that position. And uh, in the end, the Department of the Interior was effectively compelled to create a national park in Boston on a shoestring budget and quickly, right? Uh, in time for 1974. <laughs> Our famous events happened in 1775, so we had to have a bicentennial a year early. And the the park is only authorized or officially blessed on October 1st, 1974. So just in time. That's a pretty short time. Just in time, National Park production. So it's it's authorized. (laughs) And authorization simply means that Congress has authorized the money to go forward. Um, But that's different than establishment, which is actually opening the park um, and implementing that that mm-hmm. allocation. So yeah, it's only in 74 that they get the go ahead. And now you know, they'd have to do all the planning and, and staffing. They have to c- create a new concept of a partnership park, which is almost never been done before up until that point. So can you just introduce the listener to, to that concept? What is a, a sure. partnership park? Um, so up until you know the mid-1970s, probably the most common way to build a national park was simply to acquire federal land. In the West, that would mean adding on to federal tracts of land, expanding to protect a, a natural site. Uh, in the East or in uh, other parts of the country, in cities, that would mean actually buying up land and homes and properties. But land purchase becomes more and more difficult to do by the 1970s for a number of legal reasons, but also because the Park Service is struggling financially. Uh, and that's a trend that has, it's actually always been a trend. The New Deal is the last great period of funding for the National Park Service. It's kind of been downhill since then. But so it becomes impractical to build parks by buying land. And so the Park Service begins experimenting with what is effectively public-private partnership, wherein it partners with a private organization that may own land or can commit resources uh, and provides that private organization with guidance, staff support, and vision to manage whatever the resource is that is at the center of the park. So in Boston, what this ends up meaning is that at sites like Paul Revere's house, for instance, Paul Revere's house is managed by the Paul Revere Historical Association, which has been around for a long time, a private organization. The site is within the park, but the National Park Service doesn't own it. It partners with the association, provides support, uh, thereby creating, uh, as you said, a, a sort of partnership uh, relationship, a partnership park. Um, so the idea is to do this in Boston, Right. Um, the money, neither the money nor the plan is there to buy these sites outright. So uh, you know, the question becomes, how do you, on such a large scale, build a national park around so many partnerships with individual sites 
Uh, and this is the question that Small never ended up answering, uh, or the commission never really ended up answering, because they couldn't figure it out. <laughs> they simply said, the stewards will find a solution. Um, and so that's what, in part, was left to be done in, in 74. A partnership model seems like a really complicated way to run a park. Was the National Park Service itself going to own anything besides the Navy Yard? So the only sites the Park Service would own would be uh, the Navy Yard, Bunker Hill, and Faneuil Hall, and Dorchester Heights. So four sites that would be in direct federal management, and then the others managed in partnership with a cooperating association. Speaking speaking of Dorchester Heights, at about the same time that the, the park was being brought into existence, Dorchester Heights was becoming very famous in America, but not so much because of its role in the American Revolution, but in, in its role in, in current events. Why was the spotlight on Dorchester Heights then? Dorchester Heights in the 1970s becomes the epicenter of what becomes a really violent and contentious uh, school busing controversy, uh, which effectively uh, is a racial controversy, right? Mm -hmm. um, will white kids and black kids go to school with one another? And this spills out into all facets of, of life and politics and work in Boston, probably most famously caught in that uh, iconic Stanley Foreman photograph that he took in 1976 of the lawyer Ted Landsmark as a black man in a business suit. Uh, famously shown being assaulted by a white man holding an American flag. Folks know this when they see it. Uh, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning photograph. And what's remarkable is that in the background of that photograph, you can see uh, the state house, mm. um, just the tip of it, which shows you that the National Park, Boston National Historical Park, whether the portions of it on the Freedom Trail or down in Georgester Heights, where it now has a management uh, role, is at the epicenter of the nation's burning race war in, mm -hmm. in the middle of the 1970s. Um, that is the story in, in that moment, um, you know, juxtaposing um, this racial climate with the aspirations of the bicentennial celebration is a real remarkable study in juxtapositions uh, and failure for the American experiment. And a national park charged with remembering the American Revolution is being born in precisely that moment. And in my estimation, doesn't do a great job at, at, at meeting that moment. Besides Dorchester Heights, how were some of the the sites associated with the new park entangled with, with the liberation movements that were happening as the park was created. There's a great moment at Bunker Hill uh, in the early 70s where uh, a group of uh, American Vietnam veterans who are opposed to the war petition to uh, have a program at Bunker Hill and to assemble there, and they're denied it, but they go anyway. <laughs> We see uh, marches in the Navy Yard, both protesting and supporting the war effort. There are civil rights actions at pretty much all of these sites. In every way that I can think of, the National Park is embedded in conversations about race, power, gender, citizenship, identity, and American nationalism. I mean, it, it's all tied together. How then... Do the parks 
creators, the folks who are charged with figuring out what this park is going to be about, how do they respond to all of that? And how do they take advantage of that moment? What I see in the, the, the records of this park is that, by and large, they don't. And this has to do in part with the way that the National Park Service worked at that time. Uh, the planners who came to figure out what this park would be about came from Denver. <laughs> They're flown uh, all the way from Denver into Boston to do the work of planning. And that's because the National Park Service had just gone through a period of centralizing expertise. This is kind of a corporate reorganization where park planners were put in one office out in what's called the Denver Service Center and flown to various parks to figure out what those parks would be about. And so the group of people who came to Boston to figure out what this park would be about just were sort of airlifted into this incredibly fraught place and given a few days to figure out how to tell the story of the American Revolution. And so I, I, I don't necessarily criticize them for not doing something more um, robust to take into account the torment on Boston streets in that moment. But um, the process didn't allow for that. And to be fair, the groups that were running the Freedom Trail and the individual sites weren't necessarily re wrestling with those questions at the time either. They're also not committed to. Right. Most of those organizations weren't necessarily claiming to do history work for all Americans and to represent everyone equally. The Park Service was. That's the job of the National Park Service, which is to, to think broadly about how to make the nation's cultural and natural resources uh, legible to everyone. And so there's a different mission. Now, what's interesting is the organizations that manage the partner sites. At that moment, we're beginning to do much better work, in, in, in my estimation, in terms of thinking hmm. more critically about American history, being more inclusive, broadening the voices that contributed to their programming. And by the 1980s, mid-80s, late-80s, uh, in many ways, those, those sites are, um, uh, you know, they, they are professionalized in a way that even the Park Service isn't. Well, these, these planners from Denver who were sort of airdropped into Boston came up with a few different possible paths forward. They laid out sort of an overarching, there are a series of overarching themes that would guide the entire park. And then for each component site, they would have a different emphasis for each site. What what were they envisioning in terms of what some of the sites would focus on and then just the alternative configurations that the, the park might have ended up with? The big problem for the planners is how to squeeze all of these different sites into one narrative. I mean, consider the fact that Congress has charged this park with being a park that interprets the history of the American Revolution and yet the Charlestown Navy Yard has nothing to do with the American Revolution. <laughs> right. <laughs> Did, Did not, not exist. exist. So you know, there are some fundamental historical uh, inconsistencies in the leg legislation. And so these planners are trying to figure out how to, how to work on that. And one of those folks had this really insightful notion of, well, you know, the best we can do is think about all of these units as like pearls on a string. They're all beautiful. They're all interesting, but we have to tell visitors about why they're threaded together. 
so they come up with some ideas. Um, one of the ideas is to deal with the theme of revolution broadly. You know, many of the sites in the park speak to the American Revolution, but we could then fold in Charlestown uh, Navy Yard by talking about revolutions in technology and, you know, um, naval history, so forth and so on. So there's that idea. There are ideas floating around to to not worry so much about the the details of say wars and battles and, and innovations, but rather focus on broad themes such as freedom and think about how American experience across the variety of lives in this place contribute to the larger idea of freedom. Uh, there are some people who really think what's important about the park is not any of this, but rather that it's a partnership park and that the message should be partnership and that, you know, Americans can do great things when they think about new ways to work together. A lot of that is pie in the sky thinking, though, because the congressional mandate is pretty clear. And at the end of the day, what they have to do is make a park about the American Revolution. <laughs> and, and, you know, again, they have a very convenient template already in place, uh, which is what we call the Freedom Trail. So in many ways, the way the park gets made is to mimic the rhythms and habits of the Freedom Trail. But what does happen that's very important is that the planning group insists that uh, however you know the park gets made, there has to be an independent advisory commission created to guide the park for the first decade. So there has to be a group of people from the community uh, who know something about the revolution, know something about Boston, who come together periodically to consult with the park and, and provide guidance for it. And that was an addition that I, I think was critical in ensuring that despite some of its struggles, the, the, the national park could be a good neighbor. Now that the national park is actually becoming a, a reality, will you introduce us to uh, Hugh Gurney, the first superintendent yeah, of the park? Yeah, Hugh Gurney is an interesting guy. And, and, and I had a chance to interview him, which was really wonderful. Hugh Gurney came to that work with some history background. So he was a history major in college. And he had either superintended or worked at uh, a variety of military history parks throughout the United States. Uh, so that shows you immediately that it already had been pretty much decided that this would be a military history park. But Gurney had also gone to college in Boston. He had family in Boston and as a kid had done some work for his family business, uh, running around and carrying um, uh, receipts and other paperwork, uh, paperwork to uh, businesses in the North End. So he kind of knew the fabric of that space uh, and, and understood it in important ways. And so when he came to the, the job, <laughs> he kind of immediately realized how impossible it was going to be because the Navy Yard and, and downtown Boston are just two different worlds at that moment. And he understood why and how. And so he, he got the, the physical problem, the intellectual problem, and the logistical problem. And so what he did that was so brilliant is um, that he tried to bring people into his circle that 
understood these problems better than he ever could and could be his liaisons with his neighbors. So for instance, he hired a number of folks who uh, had worked at the old Navy Yard back into the Park Services employee to work at the Navy Yard. <laughs> and these are maintenance crew, um, maybe a couple law enforcement folks, people who already had relationships or family ties to the area and could be uh, uh, diplomats, as it were, for the National Park Service. Which is especially important because there was a very sudden uh, transition date, a January 1st that's transition right, right. date when he was going to own the, the Navy Yard, whether he was that, ready or not. That's absolutely right. So he needed that expertise. At the same time, because he knew the Navy Yard was going to be so complicated, he worked really hard to not spend too much time at the Navy Yard. <laughs> so he kept his office on the other side of the river so he wouldn't inadvertently forget that the park was more than just the Navy Yard. And so keeping a, a, a foot in town made it so he could develop a good relationship with folks like Richard Berenson, who was um, an important uh, figure in the history of the Freedom Trail uh, and was also a member of the Advisory Commission and the fellow who made things work in City Hall for, uh, for Gurney. Uh, he was able to meet other local uh, political actors. So I think Hugh had a real good sense of the problems he was going to encounter and the fact that he wasn't going to be able to solve those problems alone. How did Gurney and the rest of the, the park officials try to promote the park and make it more visible after it was open and the, we moved into the late, late 70s, sort of after the, the hullabaloo around the bicentennial? A few ways. Gurney was interested in expanding partnerships wherever he could. Uh, so he already had a, a number of partnership relationships to, to build uh, by merit of the legislation, but he was also interested in working with schools, local public schools, uh, and developing education programs as a way to, to do outreach. He realized early on also that ranger tours were going to be really important and that the park was going to have to put MPS folks with uniforms out on the street, walking around, talking about Boston and its history, because the park is in many ways invisible. It's you know a loose affiliation of sites. So Gurney was very willing to work with you know even community organizations, and I say even because I think this was not entirely common for the Park Service at the time, even organizations that were engaged in the, the, the social turmoil that was uh, happening around Boston. So uh, to give you an example of this, he made the park's early visitor center, which is not much of a visitor center, but, but it, had, it had bathrooms. Um, he made that space available to the Guardian Angels, which is a kind of... Um, Almost a paramilitary <laughs> organization or like a vigilante yeah, force. Like, um, you know, sort of a, a grassroots vigilante good guy group, or, you know, at least they, they, they that was the idea. <laughs> good guy ish. Keep the streets yeah. safe, you know, through careful um, applications of violence. <laughs> um, but, you know, he made uh, the visitor center available to them. That's really reading the, the writ of a partnership park pretty broadly to partner with the I think so. Angels. I mean, I, I, I really truly believe he was very open to that and realized that he, you know, he had to meet Bostonians where they were. Jimmy Carter was was pushing a lot of uh, work programs for 
especially for uh, Black Americans and underprivileged Americans. And Gurney worked very hard to put people across the spectrum of color into jobs at the park uh, to fulfill that mandate. And he was very proud of that in hindsight. On the other hand, you know, Gurney also faced racial tensions that I would have liked to see him and the park be more proactive about. Uh, There are lots of reports about harassment of Black people within the staff of the park and visitors throughout the park that the, the MPS took a fairly sort of casual approach to until, you know, this really just exploded in violence. And there's this terrible moment in 1977 when a uh, school teacher from Pennsylvania, a man named Charles Battles, uh, who who was uh, black and teaching at a, a black school in Pennsylvania, brought a school group to visit uh, the park and were touring Bunker Hill when a group of white thugs jumped out of a, a car and just beat them for an excruciating long uh, amount of time, like a, a few minutes until somebody intervened. And it really showed like how this sort of race war was still exploding within the park. And you know, to look back at how that moment was discussed in the, the meeting minutes of that park is it's troubling to me because it was very sedate and and somewhat milk toast. And you know, there wasn't a prevailing sense that the National Park Service had to intervene in those problems. Yeah, it sounds like it wasn't until the nineteen eighties that the park tried to deal with the racism problem. Right. It it took a long time. And and even the response wasn't fantastic. Um, I mean, the most remarkable moment in this regard happens in 1980 when, in a a completely surprise move, Congress authorizes a whole new park within Boston National Historical Park. And and that's the Boston African-American Historic Site. Uh, which essentially codified the Black History Trail, uh, the Black Heritage Trail that cuts up across Beacon Hill, um, and that Byron Rushing was uh, involved in creating. And Rushing was on the, the Parks Advisory Commission, so it was a good connection. But when Congress created this separate unit to deal with the history of Black Bostonians, you know, it, in some ways I sense in my research that the folks who are running Boston National Historical Park thought that that would take care of all the problems. <laughs> right. It sort of excuses them from having to consider race at the, the That's parent right. park. That's you right. Know, you know, that'll be the place we talk about race and history and elsewhere we can talk about Paul Revere, you know, that kind of uh, approach. And that's a gross overstatement. I mean, certainly there's good programming uh, throughout those years that was mirroring in some ways the new social history and its interest in, in broadening um, our historical gaze. But, you know, at the same time, Rushing and his crew are doing really interesting work at uh, Boston African American. You know, the park is contending with problems at Dorchester Heights, uh, not by doing history there, but by sending police there by sending law enforcement there. Right. Yeah. Sending law enforcement there to, to try to contend with the legions of stone throwers and, right. and That's- folks who are trying to physically assault and intimidate black students who are trying to attend school at nearby South That's Boston High School. That's absolutely right. The park has struggled, no matter what the interpretation is uh, that it has offered over the years, it has nonetheless struggled to think 
about its responsibility to people who remember, you know, the position it took during the days of urban renewal. Um, and and that's that's one of the big messages of the book that it doesn't so much matter how you retell the story or who you hire necessarily until you confront, you know, the, the deeper history of how you've related to those those folks. And that, that park still needs to do that work. So Gurney leaves the stage in 1984, and it sounds like that period of sort of the early and mid 80s is is a really transitional period for the National Park Service on a large scale, and also for the the park right. in Boston. What changes here when John Burchill takes over as the superintendent, and what changes with the the NPS more generally as we get into sort of the the period of of Reaganomics yeah. and austerity from the federal government yeah. level. Well, you know, those changes had really begun to kick in by um, the early 80s. Um, you know, the Department of Interior is headed up by James Watt uh, for a couple of years. And Watt is um, famous for being a kind of anti-environmentalist that's in charge of stewarding the environment. And also just contracting funding for all National Park Service uh Programming. So, you know, the Park Service is really a big government concept that since the late 70s, for sure, definitely by the early 80s, has been trying to live in a small government world. And so money, uh, money was tight throughout the system. Boston was struggling uh, because of that Navy Yard and how difficult it was to manage. Uh, it's also dealing with lots of internal changes and new bureaucracies and Gurney was struggling along with all of that. As you mentioned, he he leaves and a new fellow comes in, a guy named um, John Burchill. And Burchill is a very different superintendent. Uh, he had come from Lowell uh, National Historic Site, uh, was very successful there. Uh, Lowell was a site that was built up uh, also around partnerships, also about urban redevelopment, kind of tailor-made for uh, sort of urban experience economy. And Birch Hill uh, learned there that, you know, in the the Reagan era, the, the trick to running a, a park and being successful beyond using those public-private partnerships is uh, through fundraising and finding ways to deliver big money uh, through the government, uh, especially through uh, what we might call, you know, blockbuster programs, especially preservation programs. You know, pick an iconic historic site, take advantage of public investment in it, get a lot of money, have a victory, go forward. And so that was the model that he brought to Boston. Um, you know, Birchell wasn't trained as a historian like Gurney. Uh, he was, uh, he went to law school. Uh, he was much more of a Business person, you know, you look at photographs of of Birch Hill nine out of time, uh, nine out of ten times he's wearing a business suit, uh, you know, whereas Gurney would always have his uniform on. And this is the model he he used. Birch Hill had a friend in Joe Moakley, um, and uh, they had experience together uh, in Lowell. It became a, a kind of fundraising friendship that produced incredible results, and before long. Suddenly, Boston was pouring lots of federal money into preserving places like Faneuil Hall. And so after a long time of seeming inactivity, all of a sudden we have a superintendent who's making big things happen in the park. Mm -hmm. 
He's not so interested in making small <laughs> things like ma- maintenance and maintaining partnerships happen, well, it sounds he like. Is. I mean, again, I don't want to overstate problems. Birch Hill knows that you know, his model of success isn't going to hinge on helping necessarily the organizations that manage his partnership sites to do their work. His success is going to hinge on winning big amounts of money that get a lot of attention. And so that's what he aims for. And what's interesting about this is that it works. You know, the park gets a lot of money to do a lot of preservation on buildings that hadn't received much attention for a very long time. But it's the way that money gets used that is really surprising given the history of Boston National Historic Site. And I'll give you one example, uh, going back to Faneuil Hall. So Birchill gets loads of federal monies to, to renovate Faneuil Hall and to create some new spaces within it to engage the public. And one of the ideas there that he loves and that the money supports is turning the first floor back into a space that looks like an old marketplace. <laughs> but more like more like a colonial Williamsburg marketplace than butchers Absolutely, and meat Absolutely, right. Like. So, so Burchill essentially takes the Mark Bortman playbook from the 1950s and funds it, which is another way of saying that Burchill rewinds the clock and goes back to that model of patriotic post-war preservation that is guaranteed to get a lot of support from a lot of privileged people and uses it as a way to leverage resources for Boston National Historical Park. And for preservationists, that's a big victory. The problem is, though, that vision continues to (laughs) expand this gap between the way that the park talks about the past and the way that people who've been excluded from that past for so long want to talk about that past. And, you know, we see these icons of revolutionary memory being reinforced as sites of white privilege uh, once again. And uh, you know, the question is, is there any other way to survive in the park service in the, the age of fiscal austerity? And I'm sure Virgil, if you're with us today, would say no. But it really, you know, presses us to raise some hard questions about, well, then, you know, is that the kind of history that the National Park Service should really be doing? It does sound like by the 1990s, there was a, an effort to interpret history more broadly, to be more mm-hmm. inclusive of of who had a place in the city's right. history. And I don't know if that is due to, to management changes or bringing in a new uh, historian for the park named Lewis Hutchins during that era, or what started to, to change by the So 1990s. a couple of things are happening. A lot of that change is coming from outside. So, you know, organizations like the Paul Revere Historic Association, they, you know, they're doing fantastic cutting edge history by the 1990s. And they're committed to inclusivity and they're thinking broadly about the narrative. And they're doing the kind of work that we in the university would have been impressed by uh, in that that moment. And so I I think there is, there's clearly an effort within Boston to do better. And some of that 
pressure is coming toward the Park Service, which is sort of you know uneasily situated between all these partners. And so I think some of that has to do with why the park uh, hires Hutchins um, and then Marty Blatt. Uh, this park had always had a historian on staff, um, which is rare for, for many national parks, but it didn't always use that resource well. So um, much of the time throughout the 1980s, the, the historian Paul Weinbaum was being put to the task of doing sort of the odds and ends of preservation work, uh, a lot of paperwork, a lot of uh, compliance work, that kind of thing, and not really being put to the task of broadening the story. And so, but pressure mounts. And I, I think Hutchins was brought in to, to do that work and to engage with those voices. But you know what he found out was that just because there's pressure to do that didn't mean the superintendent really was comfortable with the results. Hutchins only ended up staying for maybe a year or so. It was a short period because he just felt that he couldn't be, uh, his work wasn't going to be taken seriously. And he was often being pressured to do work that he didn't think was legitimate. So Hutchins left, Marty Blatt uh, came in, also another fantastic historian and really pushed hard to broaden the scope, uh, to work with those partners. Uh, Marty especially focused with, uh, you know, like laser-like vision on uh, black history and uh, thinking hard about the meanings of freedom within that, uh, that unit, within the nation. And he clashed with uh, Birchill. Uh, and I, you know, I recount some of this in the, in the book, but it was clear that what was going to make the park succeed in the eyes of the superintendent was an old way of imagining patriotic, revolutionary, white memory. And the historians pushed back against that and in the end had some successes for sure. But, you know, as of very recently, the park was still... uh, deeply uncomfortable about talking about issues such as uh, the history of enslavement in close proximity to where it uh, handed out visitor literature. You know, during the 90s, there's a remarkable opportunity to make important changes. Some occurred, but I, I I don't sense that the culture changed dramatically as a result. It seems like maybe a, a high watermark or a key moment was the rededication of the Shaw Memorial, the Robert Gould yeah. Shaw Memorial on Beacon right. Hill in 1997. What what signal did that send about who the park was for and whose stories could be well, told? Well, you know, that was an effort by Blatt and friends to very clearly send a signal that it's not only white people that own America's history, <laughs> and it was an attempt to reach out. And as part of that, there was. You know, we should keep in mind, this is like still in the age of Ken Burns' uh, Civil War documentary, right? So, you know, <laughs> right. you know, these things may not seem innovative now, but at the time they were. Um, there was, as part of that, a, uh, a Civil War encampment hosted uh, near the park with Black people portraying Black veterans and talking about race in the Civil War. And I, that was very progressive programming at the time. There's progressive programming uh, at the Bunker Hill Monument. Uh, with the famous installation um, addressing domestic violence and street violence and uh, some great work coming from that moment. But even then, considerable pushback, not just from the superintendent, but also from his officers, especially 
the chief of interpretation, uh, who's deeply tied with the uh, Charlestown uh, Navy Yard and surrounding community and ongoing problems at Dorchester Heights. It sounds like some of that promise may actually have turned into a, an opportunity lost. Uh, I, I think so. I don't know that this park is unique in that regard. This is a, a common story during the 1990s uh, for national parks. And unfortunately, it's also a very difficult time to retrieve uh, historically because it's the moment at which park records shift to email. <laughs> and, oh. <laughs> and, you know, at, to date, there's no useful way to really work through the daily correspondence that surrounded those events, uh, except for sort of random batches of documents that got archived. So, the challenge for people who do what I do is try to understand how the story happened in a moment when the documentary record really just fundamentally changed. Well, speaking of missed opportunities, there seems to be a theme running through the book of, of missed opportunities. If you had a time machine, if you could go back to 1938 and sort of the genesis of the idea of a national park for Boston, what would you change? <laughs> I can give you boring answers and I can give you interesting answers. Um, <laughs> well, I'll take one of each. <laughs> <laughs> the boring answer is in some ways a policy answer. So I'm an outsider. I study the Park Service. I don't, I don't understand its policies and laws perfectly, but I have a sense that in creating a national park in Boston, the Park Service never achieved more than it could have simply under the provisions of the Historic Sites Act of 1935, which gave it all the power it needed to help these local historical organizations do the work they wanted to do. The National Historic Sites Act provides the federal authority to, to channel money into preservation and provide interpretive guidance and expertise. So, you know, I think, you know, the boring answer is, you know, I don't know that Boston needed a national park and maybe there were some other opportunities to think about ways to support those organizations, but also hold them accountable for, for doing good history. In, in other innovative ways that didn't have to get bogged down in the politics of, of profit in Boston. And Boston's interesting in this case because its local politics are so so dynamic and so mercurial in some cases. And, mm -hmm. and parochial in a lot of ways with one district pitted against another often. You're right. You're absolutely right. And so, you know, if this story is unique in any way, I think that might be the way it's unique. And in that environment, I don't know that a national park is is what you want because it adds just another layer to the politics. So that's that's the the boring answer. Maybe early on try other approaches to doing this work. The more um <laughs> I don't know if it's an exciting answer or optimistic or naive answer is maybe the obvious one which is to have avoided if it were in any way possible hitching the work of the National Park Service in Boston to the story of the American Revolution alone. This goes back to our, maybe the very first question you asked me about why the revolution and simply by beginning with that conversation, mm -hmm. the Park Service immediately determined 
a set of very, very narrow limits in which it was going to be able to do its work over time. And, you know, the thing you discover when you study institutions and, and cultural organizations is that, you know, the exigencies of their founding moment cast a very, very long shadow. So if there had been a way to organize that park with a more capacious view of the American past, it would have benefited everybody. Ironically, I think <laughs> of all people, Ed Logue uh, was on that track. I say that cautiously because I, I'm not a great fan of uh, Urban Renewal's vision beyond that necessarily as, right. as articulated. Good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, but-, but I, the- I think urbanists today would <laughs> speak of a lot of the urban renewal practices as basically ruining cities rather than reviving them. Yeah, right. And and I agree. There is a, you know, there is debate within the field uh about what the benefits and costs were and 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 you know, some folks point out, well, hey, you know, on paper at least it looks like, you know, urban renewal really did revive cities. Um and then, you know, many of us on the other side are saying, okay, but at what cost? And I think one goal of the book was to make the point that when you're tallying the costs of urban renewal, we shouldn't forget the damage it has done to Americans' ability to understand their past. And it has achieved that not just through the erasure of historic landscapes, but also through the privileging of a vision of history making in this case, uh, public-private model through urban renewal, that itself builds in erasure after erasure, right? We never even think to question why it is we're only talking about the revolution until we step back and do it. And that's part of that that problem. So in that regard, at least, Logue's interest in thinking about Boston's past broadly across chronologies is pretty interesting. And if I can ever do it, I would love to go back and dig a little harder to learn more about those people who charged with doing it, like Gladys Lyons, who you know, was one of the few women uh, whose uh, voice gets preserved in that story uh, in the archive. So more people doing the history, <laughs> broader engagement with you know all of its audiences, mm-hmm. uh, broader chronologies, and, you know, Doing that helps us get away from the, the the problems of profit. Toward the end of the book, you conclude something along the lines of that something's still lost in Boston's public history landscape. Then you ask whether we'd be be lost without the Freedom Trail. So as you look at how stories about history are being told today in Boston National Historic Park on the Freedom Trail, do you think that we're living up to the park's mission, I guess, and then to the the larger promise of what the park could be. The most complicated, problematic, and fascinating object in the collection of the Boston National Historical Park is the Freedom Trail. <laughs> <laughs> right? It, you know, the park doesn't own the trail, but it is the trail in many ways. And the trail is a thing that can be interpreted. And until it is, right, until the park steps back and asks along with its visitors and its neighbors, 
how did this trail get here? Who drew it? Who makes the decisions about what gets on it, what doesn't? And how have we used it? Like until the park actually does that publicly and consistently, I don't think it can achieve its its potential because anything else simply avoids the obvious problem of this trail doing the remembering for us and preventing us from asking why why we should. So it's got to contend with the trail and by you know contending with the history of the the Freedom Trail. Uh, by by making the trail the site of interpretation, the object of interpretation, you know what you end up getting is a really fascinating history about urban renewal, about race, about gender, about all of these stories that we've been talking about over the last two hours that generally don't find much of a place anywhere in the park's interpretive programming. So speaking of two hours, um, before I wrap us up, is there anything that I didn't ask about here today that you wish I had? Oh, well, you know, I should say invariably people who aren't crazy about my argument will say, but don't you university historians have some guilt in all this too? You must be guilty of something. Um, And we absolutely are. Part of the goal is to show that people who do history have for too long segregated themselves across spaces of class and prestige and identity and university historians have done that too. And, you know, we should have been more deeply involved in all of this work and we should be better partners with the park service and its neighbors. And we're just not very good at doing it. And we're not great at preparing our students to do that either. So, so a lot of this work, it sounds very critical and in some ways it is, but uh, a lot of it is self-criticism too. And, um, I don't know how powerfully that comes through in the book, but learning about the Freedom Trail and this park made me want to be a better historian so so this park could do better history. So the book, again, is Lost on the Freedom Trail. And after folks pick that up and read it, if they, if they have questions, they want to try to, to learn more about you, about your work, or follow you online, uh, where should they go to do that? They can find me on Facebook. They can find me on Twitter. They can uh, search me out at the Center for Public History at Temple University. Mm. Um, and I direct the center. And we uh, we and our students are often engaged in a variety of projects that pursue themes not unlike what you've discovered in the book. So you can learn about us there. Well, Seth Bruggeman, I just want to say thank you one more time very much for joining us today. This is great. Thank you. To learn more about Seth Brueggemann and his book, Lost on the Freedom Trail, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 251. We'll have a link where you can purchase the book and support the show, as well as a link to a City Archives Tumblr post where you can read the entire 1963 comic book put out by the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce to promote the Freedom Trail that Seth and I talked about. Because it's just a lot of fun. Plus, I'll throw in a link to the Mass History Alliance Awards page so I can brag about our Star Award just a little bit more. If you'd like to get in touch with us, perhaps to congratulate me on that Star Award, you can email podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, although mostly Twitter. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. 
If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop me a line, and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. COVID.